Well, if you've ever flown on a commercial airline, you've heard something like the following. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt signs, if you've already done so. Uh, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you, an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. Also make sure your seatbelt is back and is up and your folding trays are in their full upright position. You guys know what I'm talking about. You heard this before? Right. If you are seated next to an emergency exit, please read carefully the special instruction card located in the seat before you. If you do not wish to perform these functions described in the event an emergency, please ask the flight attendant to restart for you. Probably also it's a... At this time, we request that all mobile phones, pagers, radios, remote controlled, and be turned off in full duration of the flight to see items dis, uh, may interfere with the navigational and communication equipment of the aircraft. We request that all other electronic devices be turned off until we fly above 10,000 feet. We will notify you it's safe to use such devices. We remind you this is a non-smoking flight. Smoking is prohibited in the entire aircraft, including the lavatory is prohibited in the entire aircraft, including the lavatories. Tampering with, disabling, or destroying lavatory smoke detectors is prohibited by law. Right? You've heard that before. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, and then maybe you heard this, right? Now we request your full attention as the flight attendants will demonstrate the safety features of this air aircraft. When the seat belt sign illuminates, you must fasten your seat belt, insert the metal fittings into one another, and tighten by pulling on the loose end of the strap. To release your seat belt, lift the upper portion of the buckle. We suggest you keep the seat belt fastened throughout the flight as we may expect we may experience turbulence. There are several emergency exits on this aircraft. Please take a few moments to locate the nearest exit next to you. In some cases, your nearest exit may be behind you. Maybe Let's try this. Maybe you know this, right? If, if you need to evacuate the aircraft, floor-level lighting will guide you toward the exit. Doors can be opened by moving the handle in the direction of the arrow. Each door is equipped with an inflatable slide, which may also be detached to use as a life raft. Right? It goes on and on and on. You guys, you guys know the deal, right? Okay, those of you who've, who've flown before. Well, I could go on. I've got the whole, whole script here, but I don't want to bore you with that. But you can always tell when this goes on of who the experienced flight people are and who the inexperienced flight people are, right? The business guy who flies every morning, you know, whatever, once a week or every day or whatever, he's flying off to his, his work. You, you, you catch him and he's just reading his book, right? And he's like, whatever. He's got his head down just kind of reading his book and not, not doing anything and maybe yawning. He's got his eyes closed. Maybe he's already sleeping. Maybe he's already got his mask over his head or something like that. But if you ever are on board with somebody who's flying for the first time, their eyes are wide open and they are all ears. And they got that, where's that card she's talking about? And they pull out that card. In fact, I had that opportunity one time. I remember I was in a flight and this man was sitting right next to me and, and he, he, didn't, he didn't know about the seatbelt or didn't know about this or that and was all worried. Well, where's the oxygen mask going to come from? <laughs> and, 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 it was where, and apparently he'd received some kind of windfall lawsuit. To, again, and so he got some money and so he's kind of flying to see his grandma or something. I'm not sure. But it was just so different because he hadn't heard it before. Well, this morning, as we come to our time in the Scriptures, we come to those passages that are, are very common. Um, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you read your Bible with any degree of regularity, you will recognize these words. Um, one of the most challenging things I have as a pastor and a preacher is to take the familiar truths of the Bible and to present them to you in a way that engages you and stirs your heart afresh. And that is my aim this morning, not only with our text, but also we're going to celebrate at the end of our service this morning the Lord's Supper. And that's something that, that happens often. And we need to work hard just to stir our hearts afresh, to remember Christ and Him crucified, 
in a fresh way. She told us to take the bread and to eat it and to drink the cup and to drink it as well. Well, if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. If you're using a, a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 154 in the New Testament, so towards, towards the back. This morning, we're going to look at the first two verses of this book. I introduced the book to us last week by overviewing everything. Today, we start with verses 1 and 2 as we slowly plod through the book. Paul writes this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very familiar words. Not because they're familiar to us in Philippians, but because they occur so often in other parts of the Bible. Like, like here, Let me read Ephesians 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds familiar, right? Or Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Similar words occur in other epistles as well. In fact, um, Brian Mulder told me, Darren, in your small group last Sunday, as you were looking through these, that Steve ought to have an easy sermon on Sunday because he certainly preached through these kind of words before. And uh, actually, it kind of makes it more challenging because I need to enliven you up to listen to your announcements. And it would be easy for us to skip over 1 and 2 and just start in verse 3 where there's really riches. And I look forward to expounding that next week. But... I want you this morning to savor these verses. I, I, I want for you to think this morning about your favorite dinner. Maybe you like steak, okay? Maybe some of you don't, but, but, but take your, your, your most luscious T-bone cut of steak that you have and, and, and picture it just, just lying there, just right before you. And, and, and like Pavlov, right? Your mouth is watering and you're, you're ready to to eat it and you take your, your knife and you start cutting it open and you, and you cut it into about 20 pieces and each time you take those pieces maybe you dip it in your A1 steak sauce and you just go mm-hmm. and you just savor every piece that you have there that's what I want you to do this morning and, and you know what's interesting about this is that when you have your favorite food you never tire of eating that do you? if you come hungry so if you come hungry You'll never tire of eating that. And by the end, you guys will all sit back and say, that was good. We have a word in our house we learn from Chinese exchange students. And the word is, what is it, Ivan? Baula. Baula means, it's all down here. I've enjoyed every bit of it going down. Well, today we've got eight little words that we're going to look at. I want you to come hungry and savor each of these words as you eat them down. And by looking through these words, I think that they will give a clear perspective of Philippians, a clear perspective of what's happening here in the letter. It's sort of an introduction, part two, as we, we kind of dig in here. Here are the words. Paul, Timothy, servants, saints, overseers, deacons, grace, and peace. Those are eight words that we are going to, to look at. And uh, if you're observant, uh, you'll see I skipped a few. I, I didn't include Christ Jesus, although that occurs three times here in this text. But we'll, we'll, we'll get Jesus 
in the sermon. Don't worry about that. And I skipped over God because the Bible's about God and we'll talk about him for sure. And we skipped over Philippi. But other than that, just the main words, Paul and Timothy, servants and saints, overseers and deacons and grace and peace. Just each of these words. So let's take off our first bite. Paul. It's how Paul identifies himself as the writer. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. The letter to the Philippians coming from Paul and Timothy, although Paul is the author, not Timothy. It's not Paul and Timothy writing together. It's Paul. This whole book is written in the first person. You can see that in verse 3. I thank God in all my remembrance of you. And then by the time you get to chapter 2, Paul talks about, I hope to send Timothy to you. It's not Timothy saying, I hope to send Paul to you. Timothy wasn't writing. Timothy was with Paul. Paul is the author of this book. His story is interesting and encouraging. If you turn over to chapter 3, which we looked at briefly last week, it'll give you a a brief bit of um, Paul's story. Beginning in verse 5, we see this, that Paul was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." Paul points out here his Jewish lineage that even from his birth, everything was followed according to the letter of the law. On the eighth day, he was circumcised as all males were commanded to. And Paul never deviated from that law. When, when he placed his life against the standards of a law, even he says this, that according to the law, verse seven says, 6 says, I was found blameless. There was nothing in the law. Even you say about the manner of his birth, the manner of his childhood, you couldn't pin any of that on the Apostle Paul. And on top of that, he was a Jew. Not only was he a Jew, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Jew of Jews, blameless in all aspect of the law. Not only was Paul just merely a Jew, he was also a Pharisee. That is, an expert in the law. He was educated under Gamaliel, an influential leader in the Sanhedrin. He stood at the top of his class, like the intellect of the intellect. He stood top of Harvard. He was like the president of Harvard, if you will. He was was a, a key teacher. He was zealous for his religion. He wasn't just head smart, he was heart strong as well. What he learned, he believed, and what he believed, he acted upon. And we first see him appearing in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Maybe you know the story that Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was preaching Jesus and the Sanhedrin. The people hated him and so they stoned him to death. And Paul was right there in hearty agreement with everything that was taking place because Paul was zealous for the Jewish religion and he hated these sects of Christians. In fact, one of the things he did is he'd get letters from the high priest to give him permission to bind Christians and to take them and put them in jail because they're spreading this false word about Jesus. And in fact, that's what Paul was doing when he was on the road to Damascus to arrest these Christians and throw them in jail for preaching about Jesus. But the living Lord appeared to him and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, Saul was his name before he changed it to Paul. But he said, who are you? I don't know what's happening. And God struck him blind, took him to Damascus. Someone explained the situation to him and he bowed the knee to Jesus submitted himself to the living Lord. And a few days after that, he was in Damascus proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. He changed his name to Paul and the rest is history. All his zeal for Judaism was just transferred over to a zeal for the gospel that knew no end. He became one of the most foremost leaders in the church and eventually found his way to Antioch. And in Acts 13, we have the story about how he was there in Antioch with several leaders of the church. They were ministering to the Lord and 
fasting and seeking direction as to what should be next. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. And so the leaders fasted and prayed, laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them away on the first missionary journey is what it was known as. And so, so Paul and Barnabas were, were going out. And, and this, by the way, is where Paul gained his prominence as he went many, many places. In fact, this morning I have a few maps to help you see Philippi and how Philippi fits into uh, Saul's, Paul's situation. We see the first missionary journey. If you can put it there and, and hit the button there. Um, starts in Antioch. And he set, goes down to Seleucia and sails to the island of uh, Cyprus, starting on the east side of the island, Salamis. And then he went through the island to a place called Paphos. And the whole time they're proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues. When they reached Paphos, they then went again and went north up to Perga uh, across the sea. They, they landed there and headed north to Antioch. That's not to be um, confused with the Antioch over here, the Syrian Antioch, but this is the um, Pisidian Antioch. It's the region of Pisidia. Maybe you can just kind of see it there right where the, the red arrow is. He preached Christ there. Um, the Jews loved it. Said, hey, come back. Lots of Gentiles converted. The Jews hated it. Kicked him out of town. And so he went out of town. They continued the journey to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe where they continued to preach in the synagogues. And um, some people would believe. Lots of Jews would get angry with them and they would send them off and get... Um, and, and kind of they'd, they'd be out of town and then eventually went there. They, they returned back the other way. So they went to Lystra again, up to Iconium, back to Antioch, down to Perga. And now they sailed straight back to Antioch. And if you read in your Bibles, you can read all about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Well, along the way, they established churches. They appointed elders in all the churches and commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That was Paul Going out. Now, the significance of this is that Timothy is from Lystra. So, Paul, on his first missionary journey, would have met Timothy, would have known about Timothy, would have taken note about him. He went, went back, and Paul was on the, met him on the first missionary journey. On the second missionary journey, he partnered with Timothy. So, let's move on. We've talked about Paul. Let's talk about Timothy now. But we're going to follow the Apostle Paul on the second missionary journey. Here's the second one. They started in Antioch. And this time it was Paul and Silas. They went up north by, by land, up through Syria, which, by the way, you hear of all the Syrian conflicts today. It's just right up there, just right north of Antioch. Just, we can see Syria. Well, it's right, it's right in there, that region. But they went by land this time, and their aim was to go and visit the churches in every city in which they had proclaimed the Word of God and see how they are. So as they went up north by land, soon they found themselves in Derby and Lystra. That's right where we are with our arrow. In Acts 16, verses 1 and 2, we read this. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, who was, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. So, so Paul goes, sees Timothy. His, his mom's a believer. In fact, you can even read 2 Timothy. You know their names. Um, Lois and Eunice, I think. And uh, they taught him the Bible, but his father was a Greek, probably an unbeliever. And so as they were there and he had, had a good reputation among them, Paul said, that's a guy I want to be with. And so Aston invited Timothy to join them and Timothy joined in their, their trip. And so if you look, they continued west. Uh, I think they went up into Antioch and then they, they went up. They tried to go south into Asia, 
but it says the Holy Spirit presented, prevented them. And then they tried to go north into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit prevented them. And then they, they went to Troas. And they're like, well, we tried to go this way, but the Spirit's preventing us. We tried to go this way, the Spirit is presenting, preventing us. And there in Troas, in the night, Paul had a, a vision. He saw a man of Macedonia. You see, Macedonia is over there by the Aegean Sea. You can see it says Macedonia above there. He had this dream, and the man from Macedonia said, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Historically, this has been called the Macedonian call. And if they couldn't go to Asia in the south, which is Asia Minor, which is where Turkey is, <clears throat> that was Asia in those days, they couldn't go to Bithynia in the north, they reasoned that God was calling them to preach the gospel to Macedonians. So they ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day ran up to Neapolis. And they landed in Neapolis, and there soon they landed in Philippi. This is where we picked it up last week in Acts chapter 16. I told you the story about how they didn't have a synagogue there. It was a, it was a, a Gentile region, and so rather than going to the synagogue, which Paul normally did, he went down by the river where there's a place of prayer. He met some women, he preached Jesus to them. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the things that were spoken by Paul. She and all her household believed, and she and all her household was baptized. And you remember, they were jail, in jail uh, in Philippi, and, and the Philippian jailer then asked about what must I do to be saved. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he believed, his household believed, and they were all baptized, and thus formed the nucleus of the church in Philippi. And that's the same Philippi to which Paul is writing this letter. And it's significant that Timothy was with Paul when the church began. Because he was with Paul in the writing of this letter, we have before us Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Timothy was well known to those in Philippi. His character was well known as well. In fact, look over at chapter 2 of Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writes this, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But here it is. You know, Philippians, you know this guy and you know of his proven worth. And you know how he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was a trusted man. He had a kindred spirit with Paul. He served Paul with the devotion of a child. To send Timothy was... For Paul to send himself because he has a kindred spirit with Paul. And therefore, he said in verse 23, therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly to give you a flavor of the book of the Philippians. It wasn't written to strangers in some far off church. No, it was written by dearly loved people <clears throat> to people who were dearly loved. In fact, Paul and Timothy visited this church on a number of occasions. It wasn't just this, this first time. But after planting the church in Philippi, Paul continued his second missionary journey on over to uh, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica. Then he went to Berea. And then he went to Athens. And then he went down to Corinth. Um, and then after Corinth, he, he went across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus. And then after Ephesus, he went back home by way of Jerusalem. I went down to Caesarea, I think, first, and then Jerusalem, and then back up to Antioch, reported how things went, and things went well. Now, all that trip took a couple of years because we know that he was in um, Corinth for 18 months. We know that he was in Ephesus for three years. So all of a sudden, you're about five years out uh, that that missionary journey took. Um, and then <clears throat> Paul took a third missionary journey. 
And on this missionary journey, he, he visited Philippi on two other occasions. We just look up. We're just going to do this one really fast. He goes up by land route again, makes a beeline to Ephesus. There he goes. That was really fast. Did you see how fast he traveled? He went to Ephesus and then he went back up to Macedonia and visited all these churches where he'd been before. And he went down to Corinth and then on Athens. I think he goes to Corinth. Yeah. And then, and then he returned kind of by the same way. So he went back the same way. So he's visited Philippi. Ah, he went really fast on the way home. Because he wanted to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And so he went really fast. But if you notice, look, he went through Philippi twice more. So he, he planted this church, five years past or so, whatever. And he went back to see it. He went back to see it again. And so this helps to explain the tone of this letter. This is a very relationally rich letter. In fact, uh, when, when studying, preparing for this, talking with other pastors about Philippi and Philippians, one, one guy told me that, uh, you know, it's hard to outline because it's so relationally rich. Paul loves these people. They love him. And it's back and forth and explains how this, um, this letter goes. Well, that's Paul. That's Timothy. Let's do my third point. Servants. This is how Paul describes himself and Timothy. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Now, this term bondservants is, a, is really a loaded term. In most other translations, it's simply translated as servants. The, I think the New American Standard puts bond servants on there to say that these are servants who are bound. They're bound some way. And do you know how they're bound? They're bound because they have been purchased. These are purchased servants. And what are purchased servants called? Slaves. In fact, that's the Greek word here is doulos. Can these be translated as slaves? Now, English translators rightly shy away from this word because of the evil connotations in our society today, of our history of our nation, uh, of many, many years of ships going down to Africa and capturing African people and binding them and bringing them, treating them like dogs and bringing them back to America and selling them. This caused many problems in our society. It's a shameful period of our history. It still causes racial tensions are alive and well in America and it only makes sense that English translators don't translate this word slave. In fact, there's a very interesting video online. I remember sending this out with the Weekly Word a couple years ago about the ESV translators trying to debate how they, how they would translate this word. Listen to what Wayne Grudem said. He said, When we as scholars use the word slave, we have in mind something of the study of the background of slavery as it existed in the time of the Old Testament. Slavery as it exists in the time of the New Testament, and we can understand the nuances of it. But for the average English reader, the word slave has irredeemably negative associations and connotations. In people's minds, it's a permanent condition. Whereas the Old Testament, and certainly the time of the New Testament, it was temporary, and it leads to freedom. And it was often voluntary, at least in the first century. Number two, slavery in the Old Testament and in the New Testament was primarily not racial but economic. And third, it was often a situation that had status and carried uh, considerable legal protection. And so for those reasons, I think that we are importing highly inaccurate understandings of the meaning of this term if we translate this term slave. So think about this, though. Slave is probably the best accurate translation of the word. However, if we understand everything that was going on, but it's hard to translate it that way because our mind is so messed up by, by seeing African men being enslaved in such a shameful way. But that's what Paul is saying. 
Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. It's the right translation if we understand everything about the culture of the day. I, I think you say, okay, so what's it like? You know what, today, being a slave is a lot like military service. Okay, think about military service. When people enter the military, it's often voluntary. Um, you choose to put yourself in service of the country. And when you do, you lose all your rights. You do what the military tells you to do. You do what they tell you, when they tell you. You go where they tell you to go. You sleep when they tell you to sleep. You wake when they tell you to wake. It is, it is like slavery. But it comes with some benefits. There's housing benefits. There's clothing, ben- clothing benefits. There's food benefits. So why do people enter the military service? Because it's advantageous to them in many ways. Maybe it, it helps them financially. When you get out, there's educational benefits. And so just like in the early century, slavery was voluntary and came with some need of Finance is economic, so like, like right today, if you don't really have a lot of money, don't have a lot of vision, you go to the military and they help put you on some firm standing. You give some years to the military and they'll help give you an education. You give 20 years to the military and you can have an early retirement, which is of great benefit to you. And that's why we can read in the Old Testament of slaves that were bought by a master but choose to stay. Exodus 21, verse 5, conceives the situation where a slave says, after seven years of service, I love my master and I love my wife and my children. I will not go out as a free man. And he volunteers to stay a slave forever to that man and gets an earring in his ear to say that I am this man's slave and this is where I will be. Made slaves for life. Even though they're granted freedom if they want. But why do they want to stay? Because the benefits of their slavery was better than being out and free and on their own. Because there was protection and there's provision and there was safety and security there with this owner. Rather they'd have to go out and try to make living on their own. The benefits inside are better than life outside. Exactly why people stay in the military. Now, that's not all slavery was like our military service. There's certainly slavery in the times of the New Testament. Every bit as horrible as the slavery in our country was, but still slave is the best translation if we understand it properly. See, slavery implies that you're owned by your master, not merely being employed by your master. And this word doulos brings the connotation of ownership. And it's very appropriate for Paul to say that we are slaves of Jesus. And it is very appropriate for any Christian to say I am owned by my master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am his slave. John MacArthur writes in his book, Slave, which he tries to pull out this meaning of this word and speak about how this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He says this, The New Testament commands every believer to submit to Christ completely, not just as hired servants or spiritual employees, but as those who belong wholly to him. We are told to obey Him without question and follow Him without complaint. Jesus Christ is our Master, a fact we acknowledge every time we call Him Lord. We are His slaves called humbly and wholeheartedly to obey and honor Him. But we don't hear much about that concept in churches today. In contemporary Christianity, the language is anything but slave terminology. It's about success and health and wealth and prosperity and the pursuit of happiness. And we often hear that God loves people unconditionally and wants them to be all they want to be. He wants to fulfill every desire, hope and dream, personal ambition, personal fulfillment, personal gratification. These have all become the language of evangelical Christianity and part of what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Instead of teaching the New Testament gospel where sinners are called to submit to Christ, 
The contemporary message is exactly the opposite. Jesus is here to fill all your wishes. Listening, likening him to a personal assistant or a personal trainer, many churchgoers speak of a personal Savior who is eager to do their bidding and help them in their quest for self-satisfaction or individual accomplishment. But the New Testament understanding of the believer's relationship to Christ could not be more opposite. He is the master and owner and we are his possession. He is the King and Lord and the Son of God and we are his subjects and his subordinates. In a word, we are his slaves. Now, you got to couch that though when you understand of what kind of master God is. He's one who's full of loving kindness and grace. He is a a wonderfully merciful master and our submission to him is not hard. We can say with a slave, I love my master. I will not go free. I want to stay Because Jesus, God, has loved us. He has given His life for us. He has purchased us with His blood. In fact, here's the great truth of Christianity, is is that Jesus purchased us from one kind of slavery to another kind of slavery. Paul says it better than I, Romans 6, 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness, right? You you had no righteous requirement. You were slave. You just lived in your sin. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. So you were your slave of sin, engaged in your sin, had no understanding of righteousness, and what benefit was that? Nothing, because you're going to die. Because you're going to get it. Six twenty-three. The wages of sin is death. But I'll I'll get there in context. He says this. But now, Romans six twenty-two, having been freed from sin. And now enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, the outcome of eternal life. So now being enslaved to God, what, our, our prognosis, our, our, our long-term future is much better. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, sanctification. It says the wage of sin is death. That's what slavery to sin does. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means when He bought us and He brings us into slavery unto Him. See, when Jesus bought us, We became enslaved to God. Which, by the way, is the best thing for us. It brings sanctification and it brings eternal life. And we delight to submit to our our King, our kind King, Jesus. And there's all the difference in the world between a servant and a slave. Servants are hired, slaves are owned, and we are owned. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You've been bought with a price. The price of the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We who believe in Jesus are owned by Jesus. And it is appropriate for Paul and Timothy to consider themselves slaves of Jesus Christ. He who died for them, purchased them. He is their Lord. They were fully engaged in His service until their dying day. And we ourselves ought to consider ourselves as slaves to Christ. That's the essence, by the way, of Christianity. Jesus is Lord of all. He's head of all rule and authority. He sits at the right hand of the, of the hand of God. All things have been put under subjection to His feet. His kingdom will have no end. And we call Him Lord and gladly submit all that we have. Willingly submit ourselves, all our service to His feet. That's the song we sang. I surrender all. Take all that I am, Lord, and all that is with me. Everything I hold cling to, it's all Yours. I surrender all. That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, not only are we slaves, fourthly, we're also saints. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Just as there was cultural confusion over the word slave, so also there's cultural confusion over the word saint. Often when people think of saints, 
They, they think of the holy people in church. Or they've seen pictures of saints with the, with the charger right behind their head. <clears throat> right? that, that gives them this glowing halo. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church has a long list of saints. In fact, according to Catholic.org, something like 10,000 saints in the church, though there's no official register of that. And the Roman Catholic Church is a process by which someone can be declared a saint. And um, the process by which someone comes to know a saint is long and complex, sometimes takes years, decades, and even centuries. In some ways, it's like being admitted to the Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Fame. In order to get to the Hall of Fame, first of all, you need to make some kind of contribution to the NFL. Secondly, you must have been retired for five years or more to just give a historical perspective on your career. Anyone can be nominated. A fan can nominate any player. But there's a selection committee that has this, this voting process about who can be selected. Each year from all the, the different candidates, they, they handle it down to 17 potential nominees. And then to be elected, you have to have 80% of the vote from the selection committee to be, that, who agrees that you're worthy of the Hall of Fame. So if you get 80% of the selection committee is whittled it down to 17 people each year, then you get in and then the induction ceremony is right before the start of the season, before the Hall of Fame game in the fall. Well, the Catholic Church is the same thing. First of all, you must live a life worthy of a saint, whatever that means, devotion to God or people or the church or whatever. Second, the process may start many years after your death. So it has to start after your death. So they give a historical perspective again. And third, a local bishop investigates your life, brings evaluation to the Vatican. And at that point, you're identified as a servant of God. And then theologians of the Vatican evaluate the candidate's life and they determine, yes, this servant of God has lived a life of heroic virtue. Then he's called a venerable, right? The venerable so-and-so. Um, and then if you're venerable, if the church establishes a miracle done by the hand of one who's venerable, they become blessed. And if a second verifiable miracle is confirmed, then the Pope can consider the merits of the claim of sainthood and officially recognize the individual as a saint. And just like the Hall of Fame, once a Hall of Famer, no one can take the yellow jacket away. So also in the Roman Catholic Church, the process is infallible and irrevocable. Once a saint, always a saint. That's what people think of when they think of saints. So you think about saints in the Roman Catholic Church. First of all, if you're going to be a saint in the church, you need to be dead. You can't write to a saint because no one's been declared a saint until they're died. But here we have living saints. All right. So even right there, I ought to say, OK, that process is something is something's wrong about that process. If you, the only way you can be a saint is if you have died and then you go through the, all this, this things. Um, but also we, we see here that Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. He, he's writing to everybody in the church. Everybody in the church is distinguished as a saint including, he says, the overseers and deacons. So the, the saints aren't just the, the, the top dogs, if you will, right? It's not the, not the chief, holy, righteous people. No, the saints are everybody. And he says, let, lest, you, lest you forget about it, I'm including the overseers and deacons because they're saints too, okay? You've got to realize that is what, what he's saying. And um, the saints describe people in the congregation. They're, they're people in the church. Now, that's not what people think. People normally think about devoted people. I remember years ago in the secular workforce talking with a gentleman. I had lunch with him a couple times each week and I was discipling him and talking with him about the Bible. And uh, early on, one of the things I said, I just kind of slipped off my mouth. What did you do this weekend? Well, I went to church. I just love being with the saints. And he's like, what are you talking about? 
And, and so what I did was I just took him through passages like Philippians 1, 1, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, and Colossians 1 and 2. Like, like the same thing, right? Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Or Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. The word saint merely means holy one. It means one who has been set apart for service, one who has been sanctified. And here's the fact we need to embrace. Every Christian has been sanctified. Every Christian is a holy one. So we've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. We've been set apart to do His will. And that's what we see here in Philippians 1. Look, look at verse 1 again. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus that we receive our holiness. It's in the Gospel it's not that we're especially holy in ourselves. It's rather that Jesus sanctifies us through our faith in Him. He makes us pure and holy by imputing faith to us. That's why we rejoice in the Gospel, right? That's the theme of Philippians. Rejoice in the Gospel. Rejoice that we are saints. Re- rejoice that God has, has given us His righteousness. We've been made holy through faith in Jesus. We're all saints. Let's, let's get that in our understanding, right? We who believe in Jesus, we're slaves, we're saints. And before we move on to the fifth word, I just got to share this. Because the writer and the recipients of the letter are a little bit opposite of what you might think. Right? We, we think the high and mighty Apostle Paul is the holy sage, has got his, his great counsel that he is going to give to his you know, sinful people out there who need to shape it up and live a holy life. We, we think it's the holy ones who know God, who's writing to the lowly church members. But look at, look at what here. The slaves, the lowly ones, are writing to the saints, the holy ones. Is that good? It's God's economy. It's the humility to which God calls us. It's the slaves who write to the saints. That's a great. There's no pontificating in the church. It doesn't come from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. And we'll see that in chapter 2 as we speak about humility. Well, let's go on to our fifth word. Overseers. In fact, I'm going to tie that with my sixth word, deacons. Because these are the leaders in the church. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. I mean, these are just the, all the, he's writing to these people in the church in Philippi. The only church in Philippi. Philippi Bible Church is what it was called. Um, including the overseers and deacons. And I love this statement because it just shows how simple leadership is in the early church. Two offices are given in the early church, overseers and deacons. The Greek word for overseer is episkopos, which sounds like an English word we know, right? Episkopos sounds like episcopal, like the Episcopal Church. comes from two Greek words, epi, which means upon, epidermis, like upon the skin, epi, skopos, right? You're going to scope something out. So you're, you're looking from upon, right? You're, you're looking over, you're watching, you are overseeing the best picture of this is a shepherd perched high up on a hill looking over his sheep seeking their welfare scanning back and forth to make sure that all is well with the sheep watching out for dangers watching out for the lions and watching out for the bears watching out for the dangerous cliffs or the poisonous plants that's the role of a pastor of a church the pastor oversees people he, he shepherds the church in fact, that's the role of an elder. An elder cares for the church and oversees the church. In fact, all of these words are synonyms. 
An elder is a synonym with an overseer, is a synonym with a pastor. They mean the same thing. Every time they're used in Scripture, they're talking about that. Because when, when Paul writes his letter to 1 Timothy, writes his letter to 1 Timothy called 1 Timothy, Paul writes his letter to Timothy called 1 Timothy. His name wasn't 1 Timothy, his name was Timothy. But the first letter he wrote to Timothy, all right, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he speaks up there about the overseers, the office of an overseer. And then when he talks to Titus, exactly the same thing. He calls him an elder because an overseer is an elder. When Paul spoke with the elders at Ephesus, he said this. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Your elders, right? The God, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What's your role? To shepherd the church of God, right? To pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Elders, God has made you overseers so you can pastor the church. Peter used similar words when he was writing to the elders. He said, shepherd the flock of God by exercising oversight. Right? You elders shepherd the church by exercising oversight. Elders are pastors, are overseers. The second office given to the church is of deacons. These are the ones who come alongside the elders to help them in the work. The Greek word here is, for deacon is diakonos, which is best translated Servant. Jesus used the word in Mark 10, 42-45. Here gives you an idea of what servant means. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not that way among you, but whoever wishes to become great shall be your, here it is, diakonos, your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, doulos. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is, deacon. Even the Son of Man did not come to be deacon, to to be served, but he came to deacon, he came to serve. The best picture of a deacon comes in Acts chapter 6. The church is facing all these burdens, these problems, because the apostles are being overburdened. Not only were the apostles preaching the word to the masses, but they're also engaged in the work of caring for the widows, I'm sure a work that they loved doing. And the problem was, it was just simply too much. And so some of the widows were being neglected. And, and, and the apostles said, it's not good to neglect the Word of God to serve tables. Not that either of those are, 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 are menial in any way. Not that serving tables is. And so he said, we're not serving these tables very well. In fact, there's the problem. So they selected seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, put them in charge of the worthy work. And these seven men came alongside of the apostles to labor with them to help the apostles in doing their primary work, to devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word while they can take care of the serving of tables. That's the role of deacons. They they come alongside of elders to help in their work. The elders devote their attention to the spiritual matters of the church, prayer and the word, preaching and shepherding, caring for the flock. But the deacons devote their attention to physical matters of the church and serving and helping in those ways. And these, by the way, are the only two offices that God has given to the church. Any other office is man-made. I know lots of churches have big, high denominational hierarchy, and, and that's okay, and there's some structure to that, but know that none of that is commanded in the Bible. It's simply is you have elders and deacons at church who see and over, over the church. It's simple, but It works. And and as I mentioned last week, the time frame of this letter, the church was planted about 50 A.D. Paul's writing this letter about 60 A.D. After about 10 years of the church's existence, the church had established leadership fully in place, functioning, leading and guiding the church. 
I just can't help but to reflect upon Rock Valley Bible Church. We're a decade old, maybe older, 12 years old. Maybe if you count our very first exploratory Bible study, it's more like 15 years ago. Our first public service about 11 years ago. And uh, here we are about 10 years in, and we have established elders and deacons. I'm an overseer. Darren Weeby's an overseer. Phil Gusky's an overseer. Ray Hook is a deacon. Let me say, I just love these men. These are faithful men. These are men who love you all and love the church. Uh, I feel blessed to serve alongside of each of you men. I'm thankful for that. Thankful for all the work you do. Um, and I think I mentioned last week of troubles we had as a church. It's because I didn't have men like these guys standing with me at that time. And I couldn't be more blessed. I feel like Paul, Timothy, the church of Philippi, all these people would have been blessed. Well, let's look at the last two words before we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper. This will guide us into the Lord's Supper. We've seen Paul, Timothy, slaves, saints, overseers, deacons, and in other words, grace and peace. comes in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These words are a greeting and they're a blessing. These words combine the, the cultures to which Paul is writing. Various cultures have different ways to say hello or greeting people. In America, we say hello and shake hands. In Mexico, they say, Hola. Buenos dias. Right? Como se va? You say whatever, but uh, I'm sure in, um, in France, they say it, Bonjour. Bonjour. My French is pretty bad, but they say bonjour. In Hawaii, they say aloha. How about this? In Nepal, they say the Christians in Nepal say Jameson. Right? And uh, the uh, Hindus say namaste. How about Tanzania? How do, you, how, do you say, how do you say Swahili? How do you say hello? And how do you say it? Abadi. Okay, and you're from Congo, right? And how do you say hello wherever you are? Bonjour, okay. That's pretty easy. All right. You can come in there. All right? Great. And sometimes you get a handshake. Sometimes you get a, one of these. In Russia, you might get a kiss on the lips. Right? It's kind of dangerous for us Americans. Well, the days in the New Testament, Greeks would say Kyrene, which is grace. That's how they said hello. And that's what Paul is using. In the days in the New Testament, the Jews would say Shalom. Which translated means peace. And that's right here. When he says grace and peace, he's using the, 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 the Greeks, the Gentiles greeting. He's using the Jewish greeting. Grace to you and peace. He's just saying hello, kind of in several different forms and languages. But not, but, and so basically these words are a common greeting, but they can get deeper than that. They can be a blessing. Because... If you look at the depth that Paul adds, he didn't just say, hey, grace and peace, like, hello, hello. He doesn't say, bonjour, hola, right, to different people. He, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this turns it into a, a blessing instead. Because Paul is looking at these words and, and taking them into their deeper meaning rather than just saying hello. Um, uh, for instance, let, let's think about this. Yesterday, I went to the NIU Husky football game last night with my dad and my mom. And uh, was sitting there with Stephanie. And I told Stephanie, we're going to DeKalb, our own stomping grounds. I said, Stephanie, we will probably see people here that I know. And uh, we ran into my old high school basketball coach. That was kind of nice. 
Um, we sit around people, and he's got dad's got season tickets, so we kind of know know the people around there. Um, I ran into several of my high school friends, probably about five, six, or seven of them or so, ran into them. Um, but there was there was one guy I ran into, and he was sitting two rows up. Steph, you remember? It was a halftime. I said, okay, here's my time to talk with him. Right there, I sat down. I put Stephanie on my lap, and I said, Stephanie, this is Darren, and he's married to Deborah. And I said, these are very special friends of ours because we knew Deborah before they were married, and we told her about Jesus. And she's a Jewish person who came to faith in Christ and uh, was then we just had a chance to disciple her and then she married Darren. And I said, Darren, was it through through Deborah that you heard of us or was it through? And he said he was in the military in Alabama when he came to faith in Christ. But then they got together and got married and we still have Christmas cards, received Christmas cards from them to this day. And uh, before I left, I said, well, can you tell Deborah hello from me? And he said, sure will. And so you think about that, that, that I had a message that I wanted to get to his wife, and so I asked him to share it with her. Now, I assume that that was done. She probably, he probably said, yeah, I saw Steve at the game and saw his daughter. I can't believe how big she is, and she's, she's not the youngest, and all this kind of stuff. We just we touched base. He asked about the church, and you know, they're involved in a church, and their, their church is just booming, and she uh, was really delighted to hear that she's involved in some of the kids and the um, in the, the choir, he's involved in ushering. And by, I mean, there's several thousand people at church now, maybe 1,500 people at this church, and they started, it was really small. So, so it's blossomed, and they're just faithful laborers there in the church and doing well, and I'm, I'm praising the Lord for that. But I want to get back to this. Tell them hello for me. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if Paul is the mediator. says, God is sending grace and peace through me. And the Lord Jesus Christ is sending grace and peace through me. It's almost, almost how he says it. It seems like there's a relationship that he has with God and with Jesus and then he's extending that. Now, now, of course, it's not that Paul is the mediator. We, we know that from the rest of the Bible that, that grace comes from God and peace comes from God. And, and the only way that we truly can know peace is through Jesus Christ and His grace to us. But, but Paul is, is, is sort of relational here. He says, I'm just sending you God's grace and God's peace. Let's think about God's grace and God's peace. The cross is God's grace. It is Jesus who died for us and gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us His grace. Where once there was wrath, the cross takes that away and now we have God's good intention that, that comes to the cross and believing in Him. The cross is grace. The cross brings peace because when we believe in Jesus and believe in Him crucified upon the cross for our sins, then we have peace with God. And this peace isn't just... Um, we, the, the Hebrew word shalom, it's more than just the, the absence of conflict. It is the bringing in of well-being into our lives. Even though we are slaves, there's a well-being that God brings into our life that makes us and puts us in a better place because we know of Christ. We have all the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that comes from God. And that's what we celebrate here at the Lord's Supper. Four to six weeks. It's actually been a while here at Grace at uh, Rock Valley Bible Church. We've celebrated that. Where am I? I'm here. 
It's been a while since we celebrated, um, but, but it is a chance that Jesus says, often you should drink this, eat this bread, drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we're doing. We just take the bread, we take the cup, we eat and we drink in remembrance of Jesus. Now this is for those of you who have professed your faith in Christ. If your faith is not in Christ, if the elements come by, just let them pass. That's okay. Because this is for those who are remembering Jesus and everything that he did for us. And that reading we had at the beginning of the service, something like, I think, is it from the Heidelberg Catechism? Is that where you grabbed that from? Okay. Uh, said something as, as real as you see the bread in your hands, as real as you taste it in your, your mouth, as real as you drink the cup, so real is Jesus and his forgiveness of us. It's just a tangible reminder of a spiritual reality is the Lord's Supper. We have a chance we're going to celebrate that and rejoice in that. And as our custom, we're going to have the instrumentalists come and play and sing songs to just reflect upon the cross. And we'll, we'll take the bread. You can hold that. We'll take the cup. You can hold that. We'll all, all eat it and drink it together. So music team, why don't you come up? And all of you, well, let's bow our heads, prepare our hearts for this time. Lord, this is a time of celebration as we celebrate the supper together. It's a time of solemn celebration. It's a time of examination. So you tell us in your word to examine ourselves lest we eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to eat and drink worthy. And, and surely all that means is that we need to eat and drink believing and trusting that Jesus has paid for our sins upon the cross. And so Lord, I pray by your grace you would would engage us now and meet with us. God, in this way that we we don't do in our homes in general. We don't do off other places, but it's here when we gather together as a church, we have this opportunity to eat and drink as a family. Eat and drink focusing upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ who made us saints, holy ones, set apart for you. May we rejoice as we as we celebrate together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.